Hi, this is David Hilberg, and we're on to our 80th episode of Rising Tide. Believe it or not, still my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. So how are you doing there in Colorado, Vicki? I am doing well. I'm just really perplexed with the amount of snow and landslides and just all this stuff happening around frozen water. Me too. I mean, I'm totally waterlogged after months of... Uh, rain which is needed but uh, less needed the floods and mudslides still it's it's helping get us out of our record-breaking drought and unfortunately into the predicted climate cycles of extreme weather patterns but uh let's let's talk about some good news for a change uh today we brought back our old friend and oceans campaign director for greenpeace usa john hosovar john's captain small subs in the arctic and antarctic and shared many other adventures on the front lines of conservation but today he's here to talk about a historic high seas treaty. In early March, after some 20 years of campaigning, 190 nations cut a landmark deal at the UN on a treaty to protect biodiversity on and below the surface of the high seas that cover half our planet. John, before we get into that, you're Oceans Campaign Director for Greenpeace. Shouldn't you be Ocean Campaign Director? I thought we all agreed the world's one ocean and many seas. Okay, I'll take your point. <laughs> okay i want to get into the minutiae and and uh we'll get into the real stuff now this high seas treaty 20 years in the making what and why yeah it's fun to talk about this is a really big deal and as you said we've been working on it for a very long time we um heron sack i think wrote the sort of intellectual or legal framework for it sitting right next to my desk in our Chinatown office, what, 19 years ago or something. And it's always felt like we were going to win eventually. Maybe not always. Sometimes it felt like it was maybe never going to happen, but it's usually felt like it was going to happen. And then there were also times where we were really worried that it wasn't going to be meaningful. Uh, you know, it, the goal isn't just to get a treaty. The goal is to get a treaty that is going to matter. And it's been such a roller coaster uh, year after year watching this, you know, watching governments come out and say better and better things for the most part, but then start to go backwards a little bit, start to, you know, go back over the same territory and reconsider things they'd already agreed to. And meanwhile, you know, a couple governments were just pretty much steadfastly opposed almost right up until the end. Let's go back the last global ocean agreement was back in 1982, the Law of the Seas, which was focused more on uh, navigation and science. But an, a result that was unexpected is one third of the world's oceans were claimed then under as exclusive economic zones for coastal states. And that left two thirds of the ocean or about half the planet, pretty much an unregulated part of the world. What's what's this high seas treaty do? I mean, it's yeah, so the big thing is that for the first time, the high seas, so two-thirds of our ocean, are going to be uh, a place where we can actually create a network of sanctuaries. And the only place in the high seas that we could do that before was in the Southern Ocean off of Antarctica. So this is a huge deal. Combined with the commitments that governments have made to protect 30% of our ocean by 2030, now they have a means to actually do that. It wasn't going to be possible otherwise. So that's that's where we are. That's the big thing that this treaty does. The uh, the treaty, we call it the High Seas Treaty, but it's also the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty, the 
BBNJ, um, which is a mouthful. So how do you, um, what is, what's the more common term? Because I've heard it referred to as both and then another. What is everybody referring to so we can all get on the same page? We, we've been talking about it as the Global Ocean Treaty. Okay, another name, right? Of course. So, <laughs> of course. And, um, and like you said, it's going to provide a lot of opportunities to do something that we've never been able to do, and that is to protect animal life and habitats in the high seas. How, one, how would we go about doing that? Well, bef before, let me ask what animals and habitats are out there on the high seas? Great question. So we're talking about, you know, again, two thirds of our ocean and think about the animals that are living out there. We have whales and turtles and seabirds and tuna and so many of the species that we know and love are either living in the high seas primarily or mi migrating through it. So that combined with the most intact ecosystem on our planet the deep seafloor, we're talking about a whole lot of biodiversity. And when we talk about the deep sea, you know, we're talking about these amazing corals and these glass corals and animals that we haven't even yet discovered. And we don't even know the interrelationship of those habitats. So yes, it's an enormous location and it's very vulnerable. So I'm enthusiastic that we will be able to protect a good portion of this habitat. You've been out there and under there. You've actually taken uh, one person submersibles down to the bottom of the Arctic and Antarctic Ocean. W what do you see when you get there? I mean, we're talking about habitats that's the largest undisturbed habitat, but most people haven't put their eyes on it. What do you what do you see when you get there? It's been an incredible opportunity to have a chance to see just, you know, even a, a tiny portion of what's down there. And every time that we put the submarine in the water, we see things that no one's ever seen. It's always full of surprises. So, for example, in the Bering Sea Canyons, the largest underwater canyons in the world, we discovered a giant skate nursery. We had no idea that it was there, it's, you know, the size of a football stadium. And their skates and egg cases just, you know, piled on top of each other. Really incredible. How do they even find each other? How do they know? <laughs> How do they pick this spot? Incredible. Skates are like rays. They're like flat sharks. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> um, we went to the Amazon reef with the scientists that had first remotely mapped this area. And this is kind of right underneath the the plume at the, you know, at the mouth of the Amazon. And when I was in grad school, I was taught that there, you know, it was a natural barrier that you'd have corals to the north and corals to the south, but nothing would be able to pass through that barrier. We actually saw live corals and reef fish underneath the plume of the Amazon. How deep was that? That was just, uh, say, 450 feet, something like that. Not too deep compared to where we were just last year in Antarctic waters. I think it was the deepest research submarine dive, you know, the, the most southern submarine dive to, to date for research purposes. And the bottom was carpeted with life. It was really amazing, um, especially closer to the peninsula. We were seeing just, you know, you, you think about a, a dive to a tropical coral reef, and if you're seeing 50% live coral 
and sponge color. It's cover. It's really pretty amazing. And this was more than a hundred. There's so much life that it's actually overlapping each other. So uh, life crawling over each other at what depths? Down to two thousand feet. Wow. Yeah, because so often people think, ah, the deep ocean, just plains of gray and nothingness. And I'm loving that we're talking more and more about the deep sea and the diversity and the unique animals. And it's it's so great that uh, so many scientists are now having access to this amazing habitat. And also this treaty would protect the migratory critters higher up in the water column that we're maybe more familiar with, the billfish, tuna, sharks and whales. How will they protect that? So what we can do with this treaty is actually propose new, sometimes very large areas to be fully protected from fishing. And so you can protect migration routes, you can protect feeding areas, you can protect breeding areas. So, you know, these places that are critical for different life stages of whales or turtles or other species, this is this is now we have a means to actually protect them. So what stage are we at in terms of this? This isn't a, a signed and sealed deal yet, right? That's right. We still have some work to do to bring the treaty into force. There's stage where they have to work through the language to make sure not to revisit the substance, but to make sure that it's you know legally consistent. And part of the reason is that the final day of negotiations lasted 36 hours. There were people sleeping in chairs and on the floor of the UN, including many of the Greenpeace team and our allies. You know, it does need a a second look. But from there, then we need 60 governments to ratify it. I don't think that's going to be a very heavy lift because we already have a high ambition uh, coalition with dozens of governments. So just getting them alone will be almost all the way there. So right now we had, what, 196, 200 countries that have agreed to this treaty. Where does the United States fit in in all of this? The U.S. has come a very long way. We fought the United States on this for years, and not just during Trump. I mean, going back even before that, the U.S. really didn't like the idea of of this treaty at all. And, you know, there are a bunch of different theories about what their beef was. And partly it's because they gave us a different answer every time we asked what their problem was. But finally, they went from opposing to, okay, we don't, we're not really comfortable with it just being, you know, Russia, China, and the U.S. that are opposed. Fine, fine. We'll go along with it. But they really were not being very ambitious about how they were thinking about it. And it it wasn't very constructive. So, you know, we all, all of us, this whole community kept pushing. And by the time we got to this final negotiations, the U.S. played a really constructive role. And, uh, you know, they helped put up money. They helped solve disputes. And, you know, sometimes just as important, they knew when to stay out of it and let other people figure things out. We've interviewed Monica Medina, Undersecretary of State for Oceans, on the podcast. Uh, What role did she play and how did she interact with groups that are like Greenpeace, that are normally seen as in conflict with government. I will say that Monica was really open to meeting with NGOs, including Greenpeace. She was one of the people that was, you know, sleeping in a chair in the middle of the night and the last, the final hours of negotiations. I mean, she showed up and and did the work. And she was one of very few 
politicians at her level to do that. And it really made a difference. She's someone that can, you know, pick up her phone and text the environment minister of whatever country is being a problem or could be helpful if they knew that we needed them. The treaty, among other things, kind of confirms what the UN had already called for, which is protection of one third of the world's oceans by 2030. Where will these be? Have you, you at Greenpeace kind of got a map in the back of your pocket that you'd like to see areas of the world ocean protected? A napkin with magic marker or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you asked. We do, in fact, have a map. Um, And, you know, I think many of us have really similar priorities. For starters, we want to just see progress quickly. We want to see governments actually put this treaty to work and start establishing some large sanctuaries. So that means a mix of kind of low-hanging fruit, things that are going to be easy to do, and also things that are biologically, ecologically important. Name some of those. Sure. So one would be the Sargasso Sea. I think we can get that moving pretty quickly with support from the UK, the US, Bermuda, and Canada. I don't see that being too difficult to move on. And what and where is the Sargasso Sea? The Sargasso Sea is an area kind of off the coast of North Carolina away, so a little bit farther off of Bermuda. And it, um, you know, is part of the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, It's an area steeped in mystery. It's an area where the prevailing currents kind of funnel surface water from all over the North Atlantic. And so it's also one of the major gyres where you see higher than normal concentration of plastic pollution, for example. But it's also sargassum seaweed that comes together at the surface and creates a habitat. So all these juvenile creatures can grow up uh, under and within it. And so that may be protected after years of people and fishing and other industries coming closer and closer to it. It could actually be like a national park in the sea. When you talk, John, about protected areas, we all know that you have fully, partially protected areas, some areas where fishing is allowed. Um, What is your vision? Are these considered no-take zones, completely 100% protected, or some variation? I think most likely at the end of the day, we'll end up with areas that have more than one zone. Uh, so there'll be areas that are fully or strongly protected and then others where maybe there's a little bit more flexibility. But the treaty allows for creating fully protected areas. And that was that was what we needed to be happy with this. Oh, absolutely. And what are some of the other areas on the high seas? You mentioned the Sargassum Sea breeding areas for some of the fish and mammals. Just give us a few possibilities to brighten our day. So there's uh, the largest seagrass bank in the world is in the Indian Ocean. And it's partly shallow, but even though it's high sea, so it's far offshore. And this this bank is one of the least explored areas at this, this shallow depth in the whole world. So we know that it's important for fisheries, unfortunately, because we see a lot of illegal fishing happen there. Uh, we also see a lot of human rights abuses on the vessels that are operating there. So this is a great opportunity to take on illegal activity, protect human rights, and protect biodiversity in an area that we really know very little about. Because I'm so curious with seagrass beds, 
where you would find a shallow area in the high seas? The shallowest areas are within 30 feet of the surface, even though it's hundreds of miles offshore. Amazing. Pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, and then it drops down into much deeper water. Another example. This is all sounding great. Another example is the Blue Hole. This is 200, 250 miles off the coast of Argentina. And we were just out there early last year with the Arctic sunrise. And we saw, I forget, it was more than 200 fishing boats concentrated in this one area. We could see them all on our radar at the same time. And these are boats from Taiwan, from China, from some Europeans, uh, Koreans, and they're, you know, not the, not the most sustainable operations either. A lot of bottom trawlers, long liners, squid jiggers. And they're there because not, not you know, partly because they fished out the waters closer to home, right? There's no other reason to travel thousands of miles, but also because there's no regulation. There's a biodiversity hotspot, an incredibly productive area, and there's there's no limit to what they can take. So that's that's another high priority spot for us. And how big is that blue hole? So not like something that you would see off of Belize, for example, where you know you think about a really concentrated uh, a concentrated area. This is much bigger. So we're talking about hundreds of miles. Wow. How did it get its name, the blue hole? Because we have so many blue holes that are smaller geographic features. What's the uh, the background on that area? This one, I think, is partly because it's the productivity is fed by upwelling. You have a shelf break out there. So that's basically where this sits, is on the, on the far edge of the continental shelf. And, you know, many things in the ocean, recently discovered, no kind of agreed on name. People start talking about it in a way that, you know, is trying to get some attention for it, maybe, or just uh, like a new way to help people understand what's at stake. So in this case, just trying to help people understand, wow, this is a, a special area, a biodiversity hotspot that's completely open to any kind of fishing. So there are other treaties around shipping and navigation, around fishing agreements, um, also around deep sea mining that may not be directly covered by this treaty, but I gather this treaty then becomes a, another power center to uh, confront issues like deep sea mining, which... Uh, We've also talked about on this podcast, uh, and I know you're very involved in that issue. How do you see this uh, Global Ocean Treaty impacting the rush for deep sea industrial mining? I think that deep sea mining is never going to get off the ground. I think if we keep fighting this, we will stop it before it starts. I'm, I'll give you that prediction right now. Um, Woohoo! That'll be a good one. I'm gonna I'm gonna check in on this in uh, July of 2023. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, I mean, right now the International Seabed Authority is meeting in Jamaica. Really, for the first time, we're seeing many of the member countries step up and say we're not going to support moving forward uh, on this time frame, opening up the deep sea to mining, and. Those decisions are made by consensus. It's hard to see how the ISA is going to be able to allow permitting process to happen that, that quickly. I think it's going to take years. And by then, you know, we'll be able to stop this. I really, I really don't think that we're going to lose. But anyway, the best thing about this in, term, in terms of deep sea mining is that it institutes pretty strong requirements for environmental impact assessments. 
and there's a committee that is multiple governments. So it's no longer possible for you know one country, one government to permit operations by a company based in their borders without scrutiny from the rest of the world. So if you know if it's just a sham surface level assessment, there's more there's more transparency and there's more accountability. You've been working a long time on ocean conservation. How happy are you compared to what you've been looking at over the last 20 years? You know, this has been called the biggest environmental treaty in history. I don't know quite how I feel about that yet because it doesn't quite even exist yet and it certainly hasn't been implemented, but it's absolutely a big deal. I feel like this was something that was worth fighting for for almost 20 years. And without this, it's impossible to see how we could have protected biodiversity in almost two thirds of the world's oceans. It is enormous. And what I think is also fascinating, it really creates this mechanism for addressing marine protected areas, fisheries restrictions, uh, limitations on deep sea mining, and it all kind of puts it in the same place. So it takes out all of the 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 pieces and puts them together so we can look at it as a whole. So when you talk about two thirds of the ocean, that's half the planet. If we're addressing climate, then one of the things the science shows is protected habitats are more resilient to the impacts of fossil fuel fired climate disaster. And I guess this is also a big climate victory then. Absolutely. And, you know, we should probably back up and talk about why sanctuaries are important at all in the first place. And the fact is they're the best tool that we have to rebuild depleted populations, to protect biodiversity in the ocean, and as you said, to help our oceans be resilient enough that they can survive things like climate change and ocean acidification and the damage that we have done already from industrial extraction, especially fisheries. So if we actually implement a lot of these initiatives, um, are you anticipating pushback, whether it's political or different industries, extractive industries? Are you preparing for, as an organization, pushback? There is always pushback. (laughs) That was an easy question. (laughs) We call that softball. (laughs) You know, there's nothing worth fighting for that is going to be easy. And right up until the end, one of the biggest contentious parts of this agreement was the extent to which it would cover areas that are already somewhat covered by regional fishery management organizations. So for example, the Western Central Pacific has a body that is really focused on managing tuna fisheries. And they don't want anyone else coming in and saying, we're actually going to, we're going to create a protected area in the Western or Central Pacific because they, they feel like it's their turf. All they're really interested in is managing tuna fisheries. They don't have a mandate to protect biodiversity. They've never established a protected area. They don't do a very good job of protecting sharks or turtles that are killed by tuna fisheries, for example. So they're really narrowly focused and largely captured, to be honest, by the fishing industry. So that's one of the reasons why this treaty 
absolutely had to be able to address areas, whether there was another body in that region or not. People say, well, what can I do about global overfishing or climate change? And I wrote a book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, saying everything you do every day impacts uh, the seas around us. But in terms of something like a global ocean treaty, what can the average person listening um, do to impact, to move forward uh, this important moment? I think we would not have this treaty at all if it wasn't for the fact that five and a half million people stepped up and told their governments that they wanted something like this. Now, we're going to have to continue to keep the pressure on. You know, our, if our governments don't know that this is important to us, they're just going to be listening to the fishing industry, which is absolutely going to be telling them that they shouldn't do anything. So it's only pressure that got us this far. And without continuing the pressure, we're not going to be able to make this treaty what it needs to be. So get your senator to ratify the High Seas Treaty or else vote for candidates who support our coasts and ocean. I think that's a great start and make sure that the White House understands that, you know, you want strong action to protect our ocean. It took a lot of work to get the U.S. to the point where they were playing a really useful role in this treaty. But meanwhile, on the Global Plastic Treaty, which has just started negotiations, the U.S. is not playing a very good role at all. In fact, they're one of the more problematic governments in the whole, the whole field, right there with Saudi Arabia and Russia. So that's going to take a lot of, a lot of effort from many of us. Well, when you have uh, a very large and strong industry, like the fossil fuel industry leading the opposition, obviously they want, they want to see plastic. So yeah, the uh, average person and nonprofits and all of us really need to keep the pressure on. Um, but I wanted to go back to this treaty and tell us what the next steps are. The Greenpeace, we're heading back out to sea. Now that we have a treaty in the works, we, uh, we're going to be fighting to actually make sure it gets implemented. So we're going to be heading to many of the areas that we want to see on the short list uh, and helping people understand why these areas are special and in need of protection. I'm just so excited to have you on the show. And David and I have been talking about this treaty and we're delighted that you gave us a really good overview. So thank you so much, John, for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. And we will follow all of the international actions and keep our fingers crossed for good, strong ocean protection worldwide. Always a pleasure to join you. Great to see you both and keep up the good work. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear.
the ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky! There you are. Good boy, Sparky. 